You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Quick note up front, this is, as the episode title suggests, the seventh part in a series spanning back two and a half years about a mysterious, sunken, supposed submarine discovered in the Chicago River in 1915. If you are just discovering the show now, and there's a good chance of it, it's probably not a great place to start. You should maybe go back through the feed a bit and find one of the many standalone episodes available. It is, however, the biggest and certainly one of the most interesting stories we've covered. So if you want to listen in, do yourself a favor and catch up by searching Fool Killer, that's one word, Fool Killer, in your app of choice, or go to constantpodcast.com and find the Fool Killer playlist on Spotify. Or at least go back one episode to the Fool Killer Part 6. It's largely a summation of the first five parts. It won't give you everything you need to fully appreciate this one, but it's better than nothing. And thanks for listening. Okay, this is going to be a honking one, so let's get on with it. All right. We are recording. We are at, what the hell is this place called? Um, North Shore Garden of Memories, I believe. We Mark wait. just found the grave. Well, we're going to go find the we're grave. We're going to go find the grave. They didn't ask They didn't ask why. They just assumed that I wanted to know about my loved one. I'm sure that they wouldn't have been protective of the information if I had explained myself, but... Why bother? <laughs> well, I just thought they might be interested that one of the people buried here built a submarine. Why would they be interested in that at all? <laughs> Who would be interested in that in the whole entire world aside from me? Over the last four or five years that I've been investigating the Fool Killer submarine, I've had a number of false epiphanies. And we're looking for F, section F near the section FF. Times when I was sure I was on the right track, or even that I'd arrived at the answer. Including this time. Here we go, FF. Right over here, somewhere. We'll stop the car. Yeah. Okay. This was just four weeks ago. Let's, let's get out and see what's, what's going on. After two and a half years of living in a state of misplaced confidence that I had nailed down the inventor of the mysterious submarine vessel, which William Frenchie Deneau had pulled out of the Chicago River, a single small magazine article and photograph had arrived in my inbox and upset the whole apple cart. Uh, over here, maybe? 
Yes. Okay. Here you go. Here's Jesse Brown and Robert A. Brown. Robert! I originally solved the Fool Killer mystery when I realized it didn't have to be a submarine after all. That sent me down a rabbit hole searching for experimental and eccentric boats built at the turn of the last century that could have been mistaken for submarines. I landed on Alexander McDougall, a Scottish immigrant and Great Lakes boat captain who'd built a number of submarine-looking boats called whalebacks that he thought would be safer and less prone to sinking than the regular traffic on the waters. With mixed results. But the Fool Killer wasn't a whaleback. It was too small to match the dimensions of any of McDougal's boats. I wasn't done with my it's-not-a-submarine theory, though. I spent a few weeks searching for any other odd-shaped vessel that could have been the Fool Killer. Until I stumbled upon Lewis Gathman. What do you know? It was a submarine after all. That was what I thought. That was what I felt sure of. Until that single small magazine article and fucking photograph which sent me and Heather four weeks ago to a cemetery in a town called North Chicago, which I didn't even know existed, to find the grave of the Fool Killer's real inventor. I think this is it. I think we just have... No, we just have to have this seance. We just have to stand here over the remains of Robert A. Brown and say, we've been looking for who built your boat for years. Well... I was on the toilet. You don't need to know that, but here we are. I was on the toilet when I received the email with a subject line reading, Fool killer! Holy fuck, it's the fool killer! Holy fuck, holy fuck! It had taken me years to sift through the literature, discovering Lewis Gathman and building the case that he was responsible. In an instant, I knew it was all wrong. Sitting there, staring at the photo, reading the article, my pants around my ankles, I responded with twinfold appropriateness. Holy shit. The article, I should say, didn't explain everything. Actually, it explained very little. But the photo and the description left no doubt. Whatever this was, wherever it came from, whoever built it, this was the thing that Frenchie pulled out of the river. I immediately began searching, frantically, from every angle I could. There were a number of companies named, which I'll come back to, said to have a part in the vessel's construction. There were a couple of dates, a couple of details, enough to get started. And after a week and a half of reading and looking, I found the guy, right there at the North Suburban Cemetery. Well, that's it. This is what we drove all the way up here for. Or I thought I did, at least. Like I said, though, turns out I was wrong again. And Heather was yelling at the tombstones of a random, totally uninvolved, long-dead railroad conductor and his wife. How did you get the boat built? Sorry about that, Robert. Sorry, Jesse. Nothing. He's not speaking to me. We need a medium. There are a lot of things that make the real solution to the Fool Killer mystery harder to understand and pin down than my previous solution. Louis Gathman is virtually unknown today, but he was something of a celebrity back in his time. So once I started keying in on him, there was no shortage of detail to be found. Not to mention he was building a submarine in 1895, a fact that had flown from historical consciousness, but which at the moment was extraordinary enough for people to write about. In contrast, it seems, 
nobody much cared about the building of the actual fool killer. Aside from this small article in a magazine called Powerboat News and a couple of newspaper pieces describing pending lawsuits, no one appears to have written about it at all or taken any notice of its existence. And the same is true for its builder. He was not so much forgotten like Gathman as he was never known in the first place. So working out much of anything about either of them is difficult. But maybe the most vexing thing about the guy is his name. In the early 1900s, there were more than 2 million people living in the city of Chicago. And here I was, looking for just one of them, by the needle in the haystack name of Robert Brown. It's no wonder I dragged my wife and dog to the wrong cemetery to snoop around and interrogate the wrong grave. Who's the dog? Yeah, they didn't bury the dog here. How could I possibly pick out the right Robert Brown of all the Robert Browns? A week later, I did. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Fool Killer Part 7, or Rewrite History. In retrospect, I should have been more skeptical. The biggest problem with my hypothesis that Lewis Gathman was responsible for the fool killer was also its greatest strength. It fit so perfectly. Too perfectly. How the sub got built, how it got to the river, how it sank, why no one remembered, why no one came forward. It explained everything. And it did so in a neatly satisfying and compelling way. And really... What are the chances of that? That very neatness ought to have given me more pause. Why should the answer to this obscure and hazy question fit so well? In contrast, as you will soon see, the actual explanation for the fool killer is messy and nebulous. It not only fails to answer all of the questions that Gathman seemingly addressed, it actually creates a whole bunch of new questions, many of which I can't answer. And yet, in spite of all the problems and odd edges and frustrating paradoxes, it must be the answer. We're, uh, let me just ask you first off, what's, where's your confidence sitting percentage wise? Uh, I mean, my confidence, I, if you're really just going to uh, nail me on one guess, I'm like 90 5% sure that what the boat that is in this article that I came across, the image that was posted on Facebook, is the exact same boat that Frenchie Deneau pulled up out of the river. Um, if you want to get a little bit more intricate, like I can't say they are the exact same boat, but I am 95% confident that if they're not the same boat, they were built by the same person. This is my new friend, Matthew. Uh, my name is Matthew Riquetza. Uh been listening to the podcast for a while. I think I was listening to the Fool Killer episodes as they originally came out. And I think like a lot of people, I got so you know caught up and enthralled with the saga of it all that uh, it got me invested enough. And now I'm a part of it. So that's fun. 
After years of me searching, and then years of sedentary self-satisfaction, it's Matthew who ultimately found the Fool Killer. Let's get on to the topic at hand. How did you run across our Fool Killer? I really wish I had a, a better, more romantic story. But the reality is that I'm on Facebook, and the main reason I stay on Facebook, everyone says all these things about it, the main reason I stay on Facebook is because it's hit a, a growth point where it draws in a lot of uh, people into these niche research groups. Um, and I was scrolling through my feed, one of the groups, which was shipyards and shipbuildings, shipbuilding before 1945, I believe that was the name of the group, just had a picture of the fool killer. Um, and they didn't know what it was. Anyone, you know, it was, they said it was, I don't want to give it away yet. Um, but they, they asked if this particular style of boat had gotten developed. And when I saw it, my brain got very excited because it recognized the shape, but it didn't know why it recognized the shape. So I was just panicked and excited for like three or four seconds before my brain caught up and recognized why I knew that shape. So the whoever was posting this had no idea of its, uh, well, relative significance at all. None whatsoever. And uh, I'm the only one that commented to that post. I commented a link to the podcast. Uh, they didn't seem to take much of an interest and they hadn't heard of the podcast beforehand. So. Oh, well, fuck them. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. There was one thing that gave me the slightest hesitation about Gathman at the time. When I first started trying to solve the mystery, it seemed likely to me that the whole thing was predicated upon a faulty assumption, that the thing Frenchie Deneau discovered in the Chicago River in 1915 was a submarine. Everybody who'd looked into the matter had assumed that was correct, but it didn't seem at all obvious to me. Sure, Frenchie had called it a submarine, as had the newspapers and C.W. Parker's circus ads and Riverview Amusement Park, but what did they know? Besides which, all of them had a vested interest in calling it a submarine because that was what made the story juicy and the object valuable. Yes, the Fool Killer certainly looked like a submarine, at least it did to me and to Frenchie and to everyone else who'd bothered to take a gander at it since 1915. But in 1915, submarines were top of mind, and since then they've become a regular part of the world. Whenever the Fool Killer first went into the drink, that wasn't necessarily so. People in 1905 or 1895 or whenever might not have found the idea so obvious. And possibly for good reason. The turn of the 20th century was a wild time for industry and invention. The world was changing at a furious pace. There were internal combustion engines, electric lighting, electric batteries, hydrogen and helium balloons, cheap steel, telephones, and dozens of other objects and inventions which simply hadn't existed a few years before. It was apparent to everyone that the future was going to look much different than the past. But what shape that future would take was anybody's guess. Maybe submarines would be a part of it. But just as likely was a future in which there were different kinds of boats, like Alexander McDougall's whalebacks, or the turbine-powered cigar boats of Ross Winans, or, I mean, who knows? There's a saying in medicine, an axiom, that's given to new physicians to keep in mind when examining patients. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses. 
not zebras. In other words, when you're looking at a question, don't leap right for the most exotic explanation. Most of the time, it's going to be horses, not zebras. Most of the time, it's going to be a boat, not a submarine. But despite some minor misgivings, I eventually succumbed to the zebras because Lewis Gaffman fit the bill so precisely. And when I saw the article in the January 1906 edition of that obscure trade paper, Powerboat News, I immediately knew I'd been taken. It read, Sure. All right. Here we go. Powerboat News, January 27th, 1906. New life-saving powerboat. The photo reproduced here within does not represent a flying ship, as many would suppose, but it is a new life-saving powerboat which is being brought out by Brown Brothers Building Contractors of Chicago, Illinois. The boat is built entirely of steel, is 40 feet long, and has a breadth of four feet. She is expected to be adopted by the United States government when she shows up in demonstration that she is equal to the claims of the patentees. The boat is fitted with a three-cylinder, four-by-five-inch McDonnell Douglas two-stroke engine. In a recent trip on the Chicago River, she made about five miles per hour, but as the outfit was not completed at the time, it was not a fair test. It is expected, though, that when everything is ship-shape, she will develop almost 10 miles in any kind of sea. The hull was built by Kling Brothers of Chicago, and the power furnished by A.H. McDonald, also of that city. There's a whole lot there to digest. But what you probably took most notice of was that headline. New life-saving powerboat. The Fool Killer submarine was actually the Fool Killer lifeboat. Now wait, though, because what that means is not so obvious, and it's probably not what you're picturing. So my guess would actually be that this is supposed to be a a shore-to-ship life-saving boat. I think that in this time period, that is the true meaning of lifeboat. I don't think you see the concept of ships carrying lifeboats, or it's very, very new at the time. Obviously, we're only six years out from Titanic, and it had firmly established lifeboats. Mm -hmm. But we're we're definitely in a transitional period, and I do think that this is probably a ship-to-shore lifeboat. Living in a post-Titanic world, we have a very particular understanding of what a lifeboat is, an emergency reservoir kept on or near the deck of a ship to be lowered and filled in the event of sinking. The White Star Line didn't think the Titanic needed lifeboats enough for all its passengers, not because they were cheap, or not only because they were cheap, or even because the ship didn't have space for that many boats, which it probably didn't, but because the standard picture they had in their head of an evacuation didn't look like what happened on April 14, 1912. People at the time mostly assumed that if a ship was foundering, it would take a while and that the lifeboats wouldn't act so much as floating safe zones, but as water taxis, shuttling passengers and crew to responding rescue ships. In the case of the Titanic, that rescue ship was the HMS Carpathia, which did pull 705 people out of lifeboats. But the Carpathia had been nearly 60 miles away when Titanic's distress signal went out, and by the time it arrived the ship had been underwater for more than an hour, in the freezing, icy Atlantic. After the tragedy of the Titanic, public outcry called for a new kind of lifeboat system, one in which there would always be enough boats not to ferry passengers, but hold them. 
Ironically, it was this standard that doomed the SS Eastland, which was made unstable in part because of new post-Titanic regulations, which required it to keep a huge number of lifeboats on its upper decks. Figuring out how to safely stow boats enough for all passengers without upsetting either the balance of the ship or dangerously overcrowding its deck took a while to work out. But even that pre-Titanic strategy of using lifeboats as transports from a sinking ship to safety was relatively new. It wasn't until 1855 that the first regulations were set down compelling ships to carry lifeboats. But even then, the number of boats was based on the size of the ship, not on the number of passengers. And for the most part, those boats weren't dedicated life-saving vessels. They were the longboats, skiffs, jolly boats, launches, quarter boats, and other small transports that ships used for a variety of purposes. Dedicated lifeboats only became standard practice in any real numbers in the 1870s and 80s. And even then, as seen in the Titanic, they were not a proper and sufficient resort. No, before the Titanic, the term lifeboat could mean a number of things. And usually it meant one kind of thing. Back in the 1700s, the most important British coal fields lay near the River Tyne in northeastern England. And that made the mouth of the river near Newcastle one of the most important ports in the nation. Ships from all around the empire would make their way into the river to pick up coal, which was then shipped around Great Britain and beyond. But the mouth of the Tyne was shockingly dangerous. To the immediate north was a rocky reef, known by the intimidating name, the Black Middens. To the immediate south was a large, shallow outcropping called the Herd Sands. And right in the middle, precisely where the ships were meant to go, was a tidal sandbar. Entering the Tyne was like threading a needle with two eyes. Worse than that, the whole area was entirely exposed to gale-force winds from both the northeast and southeast, which made navigating the area more like threading that two-eyed needle on a city bus. During the winter months, when the gales were strong, it was considered normal for six ships to run ashore every day. In March of 1789, one such ship, the SS Adventure, ran aground on the Tynemouth Bar during a particularly bad gale, which then dragged the injured ship back into the high water, where it promptly began to sink. The people of North and South Shields, the towns on either side of the river mouth, could see it happen. They watched as the ship crashed, was dragged, and descended beneath the waves. They could see the panicked crew going into the water, screaming for help. They could count them, one by one, as they disappeared in the freezing tide. But they couldn't do anything to help them. To the gentlemen of Law House, a private businessmen's club in South Shields, the wreck of the adventure was intolerable. They soon placed an ad in the local papers announcing a competition, a prize of two guineas to be given to whomever could design a boat that could be launched from shore in bad weather to rescue distressed sailors. 
A few years earlier, a coach builder out of Longacre, London, named Lionel Lucan, had converted a Norwegian sailboat into what he called an unemergible boat. He gave it watertight bulkheads filled with air and replaced much of the wooden hull with cork. To keep his ultra-buoyant cork boat from bobbing onto its side, he added a false iron keel to the bottom to balance it. The next year, 1786, the Archdeacon of Northumberland, John Sharp, had asked Lucan to convert a small fishing cobble into another unemergible boat. John Sharp then put this second buoyant boat into service on the shores near Bamberg Castle. When the weather turned foul, horsemen would ride out from the castle, <laughs> patrolling the coastline for ships in distress. If they found one, they would load up into Lucan's lifeboat, row out, and try to rescue who they could. When the Law House competition was announced, two men came forward, probably each taking inspiration from the boat Lucan had supplied to Bamberg. One was a South Shields parish clerk by the name of William Woodhove, the other a local boat builder named Henry Francis Greathead. Like Lucan's, Woodhive's boat was to be made buoyant via high-sided walls, or gunwales, of cork. But the underside of the hull would be fashioned from copper, which not only made it safer when scraping bottom or hitting rocks, but also functioned as a self-riding counterweight, so that no matter how it was tossed, the boat would end up right-side up always. The gentlemen of Lawhouse liked the uncapsizable part, but weren't too keen on the use of heavy and expensive copper. They awarded Woodhove half the prize, one guinea, and asked him if he would refine his design. But Woodhove was, apparently, the delicate type. He was angered by the criticism and offended by the half prize. He turned his nose up at the commission's request for revision and walked bitterly away from the whole enterprise. Which left Henry Greathead. Greathead's idea was far less practical than Woodhive's. It was made entirely out of wood, without any kind of extra buoyancy. It was wide and flat, with short gunwales on the sides that meant it would more or less instantly fill with water in high seas, swamp, and sink. But Greathead had two things going for him. His design was cheap, and he didn't throw a tantrum and quit. So, the gentlemen of Lawhouse asked him to build another, off of designs that incorporated bits of his original idea, along with Lucan's and Woodhaves. What Great had created became known as the Ordinary, a 30-foot-long and 10-foot-wide wooden rowboat with high, cork-enforced sides and a curved keel that kept the fore and aft sections dry, no matter how much water it took on. The Ordinary could navigate in nearly any weather and carried up to 20 people safely. Its introduction marked the true beginning of rescue lifeboat operations around the world. Throughout the 19th century and into the 20th, when the word lifeboat was used, this is what it usually meant. Not a boat that could be launched from a sinking ship to bring people ashore, but a boat that could be launched from shore-based life-saving stations, head out to a sinking ship, load up with crew and passengers, and returned back to land. What distinguished a lifeboat from any other kind of small boat, then, was how it handled rough water and foul weather. The fool killer, the actual fool killer that Frenchy pulled out of the Chicago River, had a number of features meant to make it a proficient life-saving boat. It was fully enclosed, 
with watertight bulkheads. It had ballast compartments filled with air to provide extra buoyancy. And it had a real cutting-edge feature, the thing that got it into the January 27th, 1906 edition of Powerboat News. It had an engine. In 1906, motorboats were still something of a novelty. The first gas-powered boat had been tested just 20 years earlier by Wilhelm Maybach and Gottlieb Daimler, as in the Daimler Motors Corporation, which became Daimler-Benz, then Daimler-Chrysler, Daimler-AG, and which is now simply known as the Mercedes-Benz Group. Daimler's first boat had a single cylinder and just one horsepower. It could barely move, and steering was worse. But it was the beginning of something big. Over the course of the next decade, a lot of improvements were made, principally by Daimler and his main competition, an English engineer named Frederick William Lanchester, who was the first to give his boat motor a carburetor and the first to use it to turn a propeller instead of a water wheel. Lanchester's design was the first that we would recognize as a modern motorboat, though Daimler followed fast on his heels. Both of them unveiled their motors in 1897, less than a decade before the Powerboat News article. Two years later, the life-saving station in Marquette, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Superior, slapped a 12-horsepower outboard engine onto the back of a 34-foot ordinary boat, and the first motor lifeboat was born. By 1906, when that damned photo of the fool killer showed up in Powerboat News, the United States Life-Saving Service had a handful of these motor lifeboats, but none of them were yet deployed to Chicago. Local sailors, harbormasters, and officials sent out pleas to the service, asking that one or two motorboats be positioned in the city, inciting numerous preventable maritime tragedies from recent years. So, you might expect that the development of this new life-saving boat would have received some happy attention. But, you'd be wrong. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If... For some reason, you go looking for reports of a new life-saving powerboat built during the early 20th century in Chicago, I can tell you what you'll find. A lot of sad stories. Yachts capsizing, sailboats caught in storms, fishermen sunk by freak waves, barges run over in heavy traffic, drowning after drowning after drowning. Mothers and wives, fathers and husbands, sons and daughters, and sons and daughters, and sons and daughters. Then, the lamentations. They could have been saved if the surfmen at the old Chicago life-saving station could have gotten out quicker, could have crossed the high water faster, could have braved the storm better. In other words, if they just had a powerboat. And in 1905... Just as the lake and river-going peoples of Chicago were crying out for a new life-saving powerboat, one appeared. Ten miles per hour, built right here in Chicago. Yet no celebration was thrown, no orders were placed, and almost nothing was said, anywhere at all, about the boat. That powerboat news article, just a short paragraph long that got this whole business started, it is far and away the most thorough and focused word on the subject. And at least part of what it has to say is wrong. I can't tell you why exactly the announcement of the boat that would eventually be called the Fool Killer was so overlooked. Part of it, I'm sure, owes to its creator, who, unlike Lewis Gathman, was not well-connected or wealthy or used to working the press. And part of it, no doubt, is that by the time this particular boat showed up, there'd already been a number of similar inventions made. But the most interesting part of why Chicagoans desperately looking for a new life-saving powerboat ignored the coming of a new life-saving powerboat is that it wasn't patented, marketed, or sold as a life-saving powerboat. Not mainly. Instead, it was designed primarily as the solution to a different and even older problem. Oh, did you think we were maybe done with the shaggy dog discursions? The Irish nationalist Canadian invaders and hollow earth-believing North Pole explorers and fraudulent death ray builders and the like? No, 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 no. We've got one left. One big one. The real genesis of the Fool Killer lifeboat goes back to, are you ready for this? Fucking Aristotle. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> In the existing history, Aristotle was the first person to try to work out the cause of the problem the Fool Killer was truly meant to solve. The problem itself went back much longer. It played major parts in both the Odyssey and the Iliad. And Homer was hardly breaking new ground either. The problem had existed since humans first floated boats, at least 8,000 years ago. But at least as far as we know, 
Aristotle is the first person to have seriously considered its cause. A century earlier, Hippocrates had less rigorously thought about it, but Hippocrates just figured that people weren't meant to be shaken. Sailing on the sea, he wrote, proves that motion disturbs the body. Aristotle knew it had to be more complicated than that. It must be that the motion disturbs the distribution of humors, leading to an excess of bile, which the body then disposes of through vomit. Aristotle's student Theophrastus expanded upon this view, as expanding on things Aristotle said was basically his raison d'etre. He made a point-by-counterpoint explanation of why humors must be responsible for the phenomenon the Greeks called nausea, which meant literally ship sickness. Aristotle's explanation of seasickness didn't get the same kind of unquestioned belief that so many of his other cast-off thoughts did. The Roman general and statesman Gaius Julius Caesar recognized that the mental state of seafarers played a part in their susceptibility. Cicero and Lucian each agreed that pre-existing illness or weakness aggravated it. And a whole host of Greek and Roman authors understood that habituation played a part, that seasoned sailors were less likely to be made sick than the inexperienced. In medieval times, Europeans predominantly believed that seasickness was a hybrid phenomenon, part Aristotle and part astrology. The forces of the stars and moon, which shaped a person's health and fate, were more powerful out on the ocean, which was likewise susceptible to the cosmos as evinced by tides. Perhaps seasickness heightened in rough waters, not because of the waters themselves, but because the moon, which shook the waters, also shook the humors of the sick. By the 1800s, most people had stopped putting their seasickness on humors and astrology. But there was very little agreement on what the cause might then be. It might have to do with vision, some thought. Something about seeing the movement of the ship upset one's center of gravity somehow. The American neurologist George Miller Beard, a name you should file away for a future episode, knew that people with concussions often suffered from dizziness and nausea, and so concluded that the rolling waves caused a never-ending series of micro-concussions. Or else it was, perhaps, a digestive problem. Neil Arnott, a Scottish physician not to mention inventor of the waterbed, wrote in 1827 that seasickness, quote, partly depends on the irregular pressure of the bowels among themselves and against the containing parts when the influence of their inertia and weight varies with the rising and falling of the ship. But most believed it was a hair simpler than that. It was the stomach itself getting slapped around amid the viscera, tumbling and splatting and shaking with the waves. Which is sure what seasickness feels like, all right. It was that dreamboat of a philosopher and psychologist, William James, oh, I love you, William James, who actually got to the bottom of the real cause. 
he had read about a series of 1824 experiments in which the anesthetist Jean-Pierre Florence had systematically burnt out different parts of pigeons' brains in order to try to determine the anatomic purpose of each region. In the process, he also destroyed the semicircular canals of one pigeon's inner ears and reported that the bird subsequently lost its sense of equilibrium. This caused James to suspect that, quote, the semicircular canals of the internal ear have nothing to do with the function of hearing, but are organs of a special sense hitherto unrecognized as such. To test this hypothesis, he recruited 200 students and instructors at Harvard, as well as 519 deaf children, and brought them to a playground. They took turns sitting on a swing set, twisting and turning until the ropes were tight and taut and springy. Then they picked up their legs and let the swing spin and spin and spin. Finally, when the ride was over, they got up and walked off. Except that the Harvardites couldn't. They stammered and jerked and fell over. All but one of them reported severe dizziness. But a majority of the deaf children were able to walk away totally straight. Most of them weren't dizzy at all, or if they were, only slightly. But James also noticed that a large number of the undizziable deaf children shared a particular fear of swimming. They found themselves disoriented in the water, unable to easily tell up from down. James was right. There was a sixth sense of equilibrium, which the organs of the inner ear somehow conveyed. Joseph Brewer read James's 1882 paper and decided to look deeper into the issue. He figured out that there were fine hairs inside the inner ear, along with a fluid that worked sort of like a level, relaying to the brain your basic pitch, roll, and yaw. When spun, the inertia of the fluid keeps spinning, giving you the dizzy sense that you're still turning around. And when rocked back and forth at medium speeds, like on a ship or a camel, as Napoleon's troops found out, the movement of the fluid in the inner ear disagrees with your other sensory input, chiefly your vision and your proprioception. We still don't definitely understand how this works, but it seems as if the brain incorrectly interprets this particular kind of dizziness as the result of being poisoned and triggers nausea to try to bring up the toxin. But even before we worked any of that out, there was one thing everybody understood. Being seasick sucks. An old saying says that there are three types of people, the living, the dead, and the seasick. That saying became particularly fitting in the 19th century, when long sailing journeys became the lot of not just sailors and soldiers, but of tens of thousands of everyday civilians, many of whom were migrating to the Americas and discovering in the process the horrors of seasickness. Charles Dickens's magazine All the Year Round described the experience floridly. How ill not a few of us know 
So ill that illness makes us forget every other suffering and every danger. The moral and physical prostration are equally complete. Far from fearing death, we are indifferent to it, wish for it, even pray for it. Oh, do throw me into the sea and drown me is not a rare entreaty to escape from despairing victims' lips. And the Illustrated London News wrote, Of all the maladies to which human flesh is liable, there is surely none more distressing or more nervating in its effect than that which our neighbors describe as mal de mer. None more distressing! This coming from people surrounded by cholera and smallpox and yellow fevers and a thousand varieties of foodborne colitis that made their way into nearly every meal. The experience was so awful and so common that by the 1870s, people were sick of seasickness. Every book, every letter, every newspaper that touched upon the water explained in gross and laborious detail each rumbling and wretch to the point that critics started chastising seasickness scenes as cliché and redundant. No one needed to hear about how awful it was to go to sea because everybody already knew. And since it was the 19th century, you would better believe that people were looking for solutions. Terrible Stupid solutions. Seasickness cures had always been bad. Hippocrates had advised taking white hellbore, a flower in the buttercup family, so violently poisonous that the Romans dipped their arrow tips in it. The Confucian scholar and physician Zhu Zanji's advice to drink the urine of young boys seems downright delicious by comparison. Diet, most everyone agreed from antiquity onward, was important. Some advocated for fasting, others for the opposite. Most thought that mild, bland food was key, although others advocated for eating straight cayenne pepper instead. Cadbury's chocolate became a success in part because their cocoa, which began production in 1824, became seen as among the best shipboard dietary aids available. One of the most famously seasick celebrities of the 19th century, Charles Darwin, tried to combat his nausea by eating a daily dose of raisins. Sometimes those raisins could be mixed into a thick gruel of oats, wheat, ground almonds, egg yolks, or some combination thereof, mixed all together with hot wine into what was called a caudal, which, as the years went by, essentially transformed into eggnog. Alcohol was a go-to cure. Particularly brandy and champagne, the bubbles of the latter were thought to protect the stomach. A cocktail of quinine given in sherry was a popular remedy in the first half of the 1800s. And if booze wasn't strong enough, you could always try cocaine. Cocaine worked great, many thought, and seafaring ladies were advised to carry lozenges of the stuff with them for their journeys. Or else opium, usually in liquid laudanum form, Creosote, a carcinogenic and poisonous coal tar derivative that is nowadays used mostly as a wood varnish, was also thought to be good, provided you got the dosage correct. Chloroform, amyl nitrite, cyanide, you name the terrifyingly toxic substance, somebody probably tried to cure their seasickness with it. But it wasn't just the drugs. There were also the inventions. No matter what the mechanism of the sickness was, it was clear its root cause was in some way 
physical movement, and so plenty of things were built and made to counteract that. The most common were the belts and girdles and corsets and cummerbunds designed to hold the stomach in place, preventing it from bouncing around with the waves. There were a host of masks and glasses meant either to dull the sight or provide a false impression of a still horizon. People are still trying to make those. Working under the um, questionable assumption that seasickness was caused by excess blood traveling to the stomach from the head, one Dr. Kapmeyer created an electrical helmet which promised to keep your people juice in the brain where it belonged. Dr. Carl Brendel put his electric motor in a barber's chair, which was shaken rapidly up and down in a way that Scientific American inexplicably believed would counteract the back-and-forth roll of the waves. Furniture was one of the main ways inventors tried to beat the Mal de Mar. All manner of hammocks, swinging sofas, and overcomplicated rocking chairs were devised in hopes they could counteract the rocking of their boats. But the most extreme solutions were those that tried to still entire ships. In 1907, a German naval engineer by the name of Ernst Otto Schlick developed a gigantic spinning gyroscopic top, which he thought could dampen the motion of ships, and he wasn't wrong exactly, but it couldn't be accurately controlled, and in the process it exerted a gigantic amount of stress on the hull. Fifteen years earlier, John Thornycroft built the SS Cecil, a yacht with a six-ton hydraulic water tank under the deck, which was meant to counterbalance the ship at sea. Back in 1864, a guy by the name of McSweeney came up with what he called the Connector Steamship, which was essentially a long line of small boats hooked up to one another tip to tip, basically a waterborne freight train. Somehow, McSweeney thought, this arrangement would stabilize all the individual boats, making them safer and less likely to rock. Even just picturing a caravan of connected boats in your mind's eye, you can probably conclude that they would function exactly the opposite from McSweeney's expectations, and your mind's eye proved correct. Two men, a shipbuilder named Andrew Leslie and a seaman known only as Captain Dicey, hit upon the same idea for making a seasickness-proof ferry for the English Channel. They built what was essentially a catamaran, twin hulls, run parallel, connected by loose iron girders upon which the deck rested. The thought was that the hulls would even themselves out as the waves passed under them and the deck would remain relatively flat. At around the same time, the most famous, or infamous, attempt at building a seasickness-proof boat was being built, also for the purpose of crossing the English Channel, by an inventor who we've already crossed paths with in the Fool Killer series. Born in 1813, Henry Bessemer was one of the greatest inventors England has known, whose genius covered an amazingly wide field of endeavor. Machines for the production of type glass, sugar, paint, were only a few of the hundred odd patents which filled volumes with the output of his fertile mind. Yes, Henry Bessemer, who invented steel. A lot of people think Bessemer invented steel. He didn't. We have been working and 
accidentally and sometimes intentionally making steel for as long as we've been working uh, wrought iron. Okay, fine. He didn't invent steel. Thank you, Matthew. But Bessemer's process was the first cheap and reliable way to mass produce steel. And it transformed Bessemer from a modestly successful maker of gold paint to one of the most important inventors of the second industrial revolution. He was also, in his own opinion, the victim of some of the worst seasickness of all time. Few persons have suffered more severely than I have from seasickness, he wrote in his autobiography. And on a return voyage from Calais to Dover in the year 1868, the illness commencing at sea continued with great severity during my journey by rail to London, and for twelve hours after my arrival there. My doctor saw with apprehension the state I was in. He remained with me throughout the whole night and eventually found it necessary to administer small doses of prussic acid, which gradually produced the desired effect, and I slowly recovered from this severe attack. But Henry Bessemer wasn't the kind to just accept this condition. Like the film strip says, Practical invention was Bessemer's answer to any problem. My attention thus became forcibly directed to the causes of this painful malady, which I, in common with most other persons, attributed to the diaphragm being subjected to the sudden motions of the ship. Hence, as a natural sequence, its cure appeared only to require that some mechanical means should be devised whereby that part of the ship occupied by passengers should be so far isolated as to prevent it from partaking of the general rolling and pitching motions. Bessemer's solution was to cut out a large hole in the middle of a ship and then fill it with a passenger cabin, which he called a saloon. This saloon would be suspended by a system of gimbals and weighted down at the bottom. In pure mechanics, it wasn't so different from the swinging sofas and hammocks and chairs that first-class passengers were rushing to purchase for their transatlantic voyages, but on a freakishly large scale. As the ship rolled and rocked and pitched, Bessemer thought that the gimbaled cabin would remain still and the passengers inside would be unafflicted by nausea. He was a bad sailor, so he produced the remedy, a passenger saloon that remained upright however much the ship rolled. It was not a great success. It was not a great success is right. <laughs> the Bessemer Saloon was five kinds of terrible. For starters, it is not clear that the swinging saloon would have effectively counteracted the ship's roll. But even if it did, it only swung back and forth. What about the rise and fall of the waves? What about the back and forth pitch when the ship was pointed into the waves? What about when the waves didn't just make the boat roll back and forth, but actually move laterally from starboard to port and back again? These were all just as likely to cause seasickness, and the saloon did nothing for them. That wasn't the worst of it. The problem with keeping all of your passengers in an internal swinging saloon is that all of your passengers were kept in an internal swinging saloon. 
They couldn't leave to go above deck for air, for instance, or to flee if the ship began to sink because there was no way to transverse the connection between the saloon and the rest of the boat as long as they were moving independently of one another. If that wasn't enough, there were concerns that the weight and distribution of the saloon would make the ship lie lower in the water, making it less safe, slower, and harder to maneuver. That last bit proved particularly true. The SS Bessemer was launched on September 24, 1874, from Kingston-upon-Hull. The saloon was built in, but it wasn't completed yet. Rather than swinging back and forth, it was locked in place until after the ship could prove itself in basic maneuvers. In April of 1875, it was put through its practice paces, crossing the channel from Dover to Calais. But the Bessemer was so large and unwieldy that when it reached France, it had to enter the harbor in reverse so as not to get stuck in port. And when the captain tried to back it in, the ship hit a pier, sustaining and giving significant damage. The Bessemer's chief designer, Edward James Reed, assured Bessemer and everyone else that it was the captain's fault, that he'd been negligent. But the captain protested. He said the problem was the ship, that it didn't respond at low speeds in reverse. Pish posh. Reed repaired the Bessemer, and on May 8, 1875, it made its real public debut again crossing from Dover to Calais. The saloon was still locked into stationary position, though, and it wasn't clear why. Some suspected that Bessemer hadn't gotten it working. Others thought Reed had been unable to repair it in time. A third group had heard that the swinging of the saloon made the ship unstable. In any event, the central feature of the ship again went untested. When it arrived at Calais, under the control of a new and improved captain, it turned around, set its engines to slow, and crashed into the pier again. This time, the SS Bessemer was more or less destroyed. It was towed back to Dover and docked for the rest of its career. The saloon ship company went bankrupt soon after. Reed had the saloon lifted out of the ruined ship and carried to his home, where he turned it into a personal billiard parlor. In 1889, his home was donated to Swanley Horticultural College, and the saloon became a lecture hall up until the point it was destroyed, utterly and completely, by a German bomb during the Blitz. And in case you've somehow forgotten, this is the story of the thing Frenchie Deneau pulled out of the Chicago River in 1915, which he called the Fool Killer Submarine, but which we now know to have been a powered lifeboat built in 1905. It's fair to wonder... Why, then, I've spent so much time talking about seasickness, and particularly about Henry Bessemer's foolhardy attempts to combat it. It's simple, though. The main feature of Robert A. Brown's lifeboat wasn't that it was motorized. It's that it was a reimagining, an evolution, a franchise reboot of the Bessemer Saloon. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but sometimes my mind can get caught in these nasty loops where all I can see is the problems instead of the solutions. 
It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there is no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish goals, no matter how big or small. Therapy can help you in your daily life in all kinds of ways. It can help you deal with anxiety, depression, or problems in your personal life. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash The Constant today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash The Constant. The Bessemer Saloon was an abject failure. It failed so badly, in fact, that its central gimmick, the seasickness-preventing rotating cabin, never had a chance to. It's possible that if the SS Bessemer had managed to avoid crashing into Calais Harbor, the boat Frenchie Deneau called the Fool Killer might never have been built. And I could be talking about, Christ, I don't know, demonically possessed nuns or something. Or maybe not. The thing about the Bessemer Saloon is that while it was a bad idea, it was the kind of bad idea that people thought was really good. And I can't say how or how many people came up with it independently. But by the late 19th century, the world was full of would-be seasickness-preventing rotating boats. Few of them were as large or as ostentatious as Bessemer's design. Most were small, and rather than hanging a large room in the middle of an otherwise traditional-looking ship, the swinging boats of the 1880s and onward were more purpose-built. Their whole bodies were rotatable, because they were usually cylindrical or cigar-shaped. And a lot of them were lifeboats. Which, from a certain angle, sort of makes sense. The kinds of rough waters that might make a lifeboat necessary are also the kind most likely to cause seasickness. Yet, in the event that your ship sinks into the murky depths and you're pulled out of freezing dark oblivion minutes before your own demise, are you really going to worry about a little nausea? Apparently, a thick handful of folks answered yes. The most prominent of them was Robert Diamond Mayo. Mayo was a lake captain who worked at a life-saving station in Alberta, Michigan, just outside the port town of Frankfurt. Like at so many places along the Great Lakes, it was a dispiriting job. Bad weather, especially on the windward side of Lake Michigan, doomed many boats each year, and the high waves made getting out to rescue them a difficult task. So, sometime in the 1890s, Captain Mayo began dreaming of a better way, and his dream took a form not wholly unlike Henry Bessemer's saloon. 
Over the next couple of decades, Mayo and his son, Robert Jr., designed, patented, and built a number of different boats, but the basic idea remained the same for his entire life. The Mayo boat was barely recognizable as a boat at all. It looked more like a capsule or a thick metal log floating on top of the water with either end gently rounded off. Those cigar-like ends were airtight balloon chambers, which Mayo said would not just prevent the boat from ever sinking, but also deliver fresh air to passengers in an emergency. The most curious thing about the log-like Mayo boat was just how log-like it looked from the outside. The boat had no keel to keep it upright. In fact, it was free to spin all the way around, not just 360 degrees, but over and over, as long as the waves pushed. It didn't matter how much the outer steel hull tipped and rolled, Mayo thought, because there was another round chamber nested inside of it. It was in that chamber that the crew and passengers would sit, and like the Bessemer Saloon, that inner chamber was weighted at the bottom, so that, at least this was the theory, the hold would remain perfectly still and stationary, no matter what was happening outside. This idea had most all of the problems of Bessemer's when it came to preventing seasickness, but with its enclosed deck, it did have the theoretical benefit of being safer and more stable than the open-air, ordinary lifeboats of the time. Especially on the Great Lakes, where, as we talked about when discussing McDougal's whalebacks way back in Part 5, the chop could be especially upsetting. Since the lakes are big enough to create very large waves, but small enough that those waves come with a much shorter period than on the open ocean. But why does it have to spin? Why not build an enclosed lifeboat with a keel to keep it upright, the way you do when you're building, you know, boats? It's such a totally superfluous feature, but Mayo remains married to it for his entire life. And maybe you're thinking, well, what's the harm? If it's otherwise a decent design, then let the mad captain have his little hamster wheel. Well, here's the problem. Two problems, actually. The first one is that for a ship's captain, presumably with some amount of experience with, like, you know, ships, Mayo's boat defies all kinds of obvious nautical standards. Like, for instance, boats should have keels. And their fronts should be shaped differently from their backs. And even if we ignore how radically unconventional his pill-shaped vessel was from the outside and presume all of those choices were made with good reason, the spinning actually made the boat less useful. Unlike the boat we're here to talk about, and we will get to it, I promise, Mayo's didn't have an engine. So it had to be used differently. It couldn't just motor out to the side of a sinking ship. How it should be used instead was something that Mayo thought a lot about, and he posited a number of different methods. He thought that his boat could be used as a shipboard lifeboat, like the ones we imagine post-Titanic. But there was no way to launch them from a ship, so Mayo imagined you could just have them sitting loose on the deck. In the event of a mayday, you could then load everybody on board right there, seal the hatches, hysterically wait for the ship to sink around you, and hope that the mayo boat didn't get tangled up in the wreckage as it went down. 
I spend my whole working life examining bad ideas, and even I think that one is particularly awful. Or else, maybe you could tie the Mayo boat to a line and then shoot that line out to a sinking ship via cannon. Believe it or not, that didn't work either, which meant that Mayo was back to more conventional means of getting his boat on the water. There were ports built into the side, which would allow oars to be run through them and into the cabin for regular old rowing. And there was a mast, which could be raised from the top of the boat with a square sail for long-distance travel. The oars were awkwardly positioned, and the square sail meant the boat could only travel downwind, but the worst part was that, whether you were rowing or sailing, you obviously couldn't have the outer hull rolling around everywhere. So, whenever you maneuvered the boat, which is to say whenever you actually had any fucking use for it, the inner spinning cabin had to be locked into place which not only totally neutralized the entire idea of the thing in the first place, but also made the keelless, perfectly round boat unstable and probably unnavigable. God, it's such a stupid idea. But infuriatingly, not many people at the time thought so. In fact, I have been unable to find basically one critical word written about Mayo and his boat. Support? on the other hand, came from all directions. The press thought it was great and ran plenty of news articles about how the Mayo boat would save thousands of lives. Local officials and businessmen thought it was great too. In 1901, Mayo formed the Rescue Lifeboat Company with $1 million worth of investment. In 1901 dollars! Shipping agencies thought the Mayo boat sounded like a fantastic invention. Several Great Lakes boat firms put in preemptive orders from the Rescue Lifeboat Company, though it doesn't seem like they were ever filled. President Teddy Roosevelt's administration was sold, too. After more than a thousand New Yorkers died when the steamship P.S. General Slocum caught fire and sank in the East River, the feds approved the Mayo boat as a preventative cure for future disaster. And one Chicago building contractor got on board, too. Somehow, and for some reason, he spent the first decade of the 20th century trying to make a success out of the idea of Mayo's revolving lifeboat. His name was Robert Andrew Brown. It's time to pause, because from here on out, there are a lot of things I just don't know. Like, the majority of things. Some stuff just doesn't make sense at all. There are questions I can't even hope to answer. There are other things that could make sense, but it's not clear how. And while I can concoct any great number of theories, I have no way to adjudicate which of those theories is superior, let alone right. There are other theories that I feel pretty good about, but that I can't express with full confidence. One of the only things that I know pretty much for sure, is that Robert Andrew Brown built the boat which we call the Fool Killer. How do I know that? Well, let me turn it over to Matthew. See, as luck would have it, Matthew isn't just a listener, he's a listener practically lab-grown for analyzing this question. Um, for basically the, the 10 years before the pandemic, I was trying to make a go of it as a reproduction blacksmith special specializing in 
18th and 19th century tools and hardware. And I went to school for blacksmithing, uh, or what they called it at the time was forged architectural ironwork. Um, I went to school for that in Charleston, South Carolina at a tiny experimental, you know, mixed liberal arts trade school. And so what, what got you into blacksmithery? Um, people always ask that question and <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's one that I still don't have like an easy, concise answer for. Um, there's, there's a couple different angles, one of which is uh, most of my family, except for my father and his brothers, were probably blacksmiths going back into, into Europe. So when I say Robert A. Brown built the Fool Killer, it could mean anything. How many people have I said built the Fool Killer at this point? Anyway, three. But when Matthew says... I'm like 95% sure that what the boat that is in this article that I came across, the image that was posted on Facebook, is the exact same boat that Frenchie Deneau pulled up out of the river. He means something a touch more sophisticated. When it comes to hard, direct evidence, what we have to look at is pretty paltry. There are just three or four photographs available of what Frenchie Deneau called the fool killer, and all of them come from when it was pulled out of the river. Why didn't anyone take pictures of it after it was lifted onto dry land? I don't fucking know. Probably someone did, but those photos weren't carried by newspapers, and so they're gone. After the salvage, there is just one image of it, a drawing made as part of an ad announcing that it's available to see at the Skee-Ball Arcade on South State Street. It's a pretty good drawing given those circumstances, but it's a drawing all the same. That's it. All we have for one side of the equation, a couple of old photos and a drawing. On the other side, we have the photograph in Powerboat News, just the one, and it leaves a bit to be desired. As I teased at the end of part six, it's a picture of the boat taken from the port side, with six children decked out in formal clothes arrayed on top of it. It's not a very clear picture, and there's only the one. More frustratingly, someone, for some reason, has cropped it. Like, with a pair of scissors, they've cut meticulously around the body of the boat, and even around each child, their arms, their heads, their hair, down to the inch. And then they've taken that cutout and put it on top of a fake background. Yeah, the, I, the, whatever the artist's intention was, whatever the editor's intention was, I believe they intended for there to be a horizon and one part sky and one part's water, but they didn't do an elegant job of it. I don't know why, but Matthew offered up one compelling explanation. It could have been up on blocks in a yard yeah. and they wanted it to be in water and could it get in, couldn't get it into water for the photograph. So this is their solution. Actually, that sounds pretty, that sounds like a pretty good explanation. At any rate, that is the photo of Brown's boat. That's almost everything. But Matthew and I each also independently found and verified a series of four patents filed by Robert A. Brown, four lifeboats, each illustrated with a surprising amount of detail. Altogether, the photos of the fool killer being pulled out of the river, the skee-ball ad, the powerboat news picture, and the patent drawings paint a compelling picture. This might be a bit abstract and technical for radio, but I think it's important for you to hear Matthew lay it out. Pretty much tossing out 
Brown's first patent right away as relative to the fool killer, because that's where we see mayo, a ton of Mayo's influence. And then you have, starting with the second patent, all of a sudden you have this thing, and I don't remember which of Brown's patents I first saw, but whichever one I saw, it instantly looks very fool killer like. Mm-hmm. Um, where you've got one of the first things I discovered is that all of Brown's patents are cigar shaped in that they have a conical nose. But when you're saying cigar shape, you kind of assume there's a conical tail on it too. Mm-hmm. None of Brown's patents have that. And of the photos we have, I think there are five photos of the fool killer being pulled up out of the river. We never actually see its its back end. It's always, you know, in the water, in the ice. No, but it appears uh, to be straight down. Yeah, it does. There's there's no hint of any kind of taper or anything. Yeah. Um, but in, in a world of cigar-shaped boats, that feels fairly significant. Um, mm. You know, that in, in that we can't disprove it for the fool killer and that it's reasonably unique to Brown's boats. But there's, you know, once he sort of nails down that profile where you've got this, this long hull and uh, which patent was it that he starts adding? I think it is the second patent where he starts adding, you know, what we've been calling a conning tower. And initially it's at the rear end of the boat and over yeah. the course of the patents, it jumps around. But now, okay, the boat has a keel. In particular, it has this like thin keel that sticks out of the bottom. bottom. The boat is, is, the first patent is cylindrical in cross section, mm-hmm. the hull is, which in some respects feels like a holdover maybe from Mayo, but also, I mean, it's a cylinder. That's kind of like a, you know, fundamental Euclidean shape. Sure. Um, but then by the, the third and fourth patents is where we start getting like really specific details where it's okay. This isn't just like a cigar shaped lifeboat. It doesn't just have this equilibrium carriage. Now between the third and fourth patents, there's some really distinct stuff by the third patent. Brown has done away with the cylindrical hull and he is embracing a hull section that the patents describe as having a tumble home effect. And I wasn't sure if you knew what a tumble home was, but it's this feature in marine architecture where you know you, you start from the keel and the hull goes out and then it goes up and on most ships to some degree or another the hull then sort of returns towards the center line of the ship it's it's turning home it's tumbling home towards the deck mm-hmm. and there's a million naval architecture reasons as to why that's advantageous but in a world where the default is the cylinder shape for this type of boat the fact that there's a tumble home in brown's hull sections in his patents and then there's a very clear tumble home in the fool killer photos, mm-hmm. which is something I didn't register until until I'd actually gotten Brown's patents, and I was also able to kind of hack some reasonable resolution versions of the of the fool killer photos, where there's a distinct flat and a distinct radius in the curvature of the hull that that does not conform to a cylinder, mm-hmm. and that that's such a specific detail. Um, it, it's so thought out. And it's not something that in any of the patents I looked at seemed to be widespread, or I don't think it occurred at all. So that cross section of the hull with the tumble home shape, that unique profile that shows up in Brown's third and fourth patents, like that's, that is a fingerprint to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then building on that by Brown's fourth patent, that's the only patent where he shows the exterior of his, of his lifeboat. I almost called it a submarine. He shows mm-hmm. the exterior of his lifeboat. <laughs> And the exterior of his lifeboat has a eerily similar 
a markedly similar arrangement of ladders mm -hmm. that run from this sort of pseudo deck. It's not much of a deck, but there's a deck distinct in the patents. There's a deck distinct in the fool killer photos. And there's this ladder that is contoured to that tumble home shape, um, which is sort of detail number two. The similarity, I mean, it, it, it really does look like they pulled the ladder out of the patents and slapped it into the photos. Uh, the, the two other things that are coming to mind are the safety rail, which is unique to Brown's third patent. It's, uh, it's a rail, or I think he calls it a life rail, that runs down the uh, hull from the turret going backwards. You see it in the Powerboat News photo. You don't see it in the Fool Killer photos, but you do see distinct... It's pixely, but what to me looked like mounting brackets for where that safety rail would have been attached. Yeah. Just, just to recap, for my sake and for yours, there are the longitudinal angle iron stringers that are in the same shape and, and general location. There is the fairly unique tumble home hull cross section. There is the presence of this little deck. There is the likely presence of the safety rail. There is the shape and design and presence of the ladders and portholes. There is the presence of a conning tower of some sort. And the last thumbprint detail in my book is if you look at the bow cone, there's actually two things there. One, which is present in the patents, present in Powerboat News, and absent in the Fool Killer, but excusably so, is this lifting shackle. Mm -hmm. Because these boats, for whatever reason, were just, they're not launched like Titanic lifeboats where you've got davits lowering them down level. They're all launched by this, you know, shackle at the bow. So, all right. So we've got a lot of details there that seem to, uh, that give really technical sort of similarities or fingerprints between these designs. Uh, what's not clear uh, in an audio format that I'm going to have to make clear is just that while that's really yummy and useful and I wanted more than anything to get all that from you, it's clear on site that these are the same boat, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, the, the one thing when I was approaching you cold on all this, I was so grateful and it was unreasonable of me to ever think you wouldn't instantly pick up on that. But so grateful that, yeah, these are these are the same boats. I'm going to put up all the photos and articles I possibly can, both on the website, constantpodcast.com, and on Twitter, so you can take a look for yourself. But otherwise, you can take Matthew and I at our words. Matthew's because he knows what he's talking about, and mine because I wish he was wrong. It would be an egg removed from my face in clear violation of the laws of thermodynamics if this were all just hooey. Then, Lewis Gathman could be the inventor of the Fool Killer, and I could look oh-so-smart. But he isn't, and I'm not. Whoever built the Fool Killer also built the thing in Powerboat News. In all probability, they're one and the same. And the person who built the thing in Powerboat News is Robert A. Brown. So, let's talk about how we found him. I presume that you did the same as I did when you saw this article and just immediately started... Uh, searching around for information about these companies. Absolutely. And after I sent you the article, by the time you responded to me, we had both found Robert A. Brown from the patents. Yeah. And how did you, so I, I can't even remember how it is that I stumbled <laughs> upon him. 
I can't remember either. Uh, I'd have to literally sit down and try to reproduce my entire process. Yeah. I don't remember what the connection was. I just remember that Robert A. Brown was explicitly on the patent. But how I got to that patent, I, I don't I don't know. Yes, that's right. While both Matthew and I independently found our ways to Robert A. Brown, neither of us can remember how. Good story, huh? Professionalism. I mean, I, I do pretty much know how. The Powerboat News article names Brown Brothers Building Contractors as the main outfit behind the Fool Killer's construction. There was a Brown Brothers Manufacturing Company in Chicago at that time. It was founded by Edwin Lee Brown, a local industrialist and prominent Chicagoan who has been credited, don't quote me on this, but some people say it, with being the first person to propose the Chicago 1893 World's Fair. He was also one of the founders of the Illinois Humane Society. The main business of Brown Brothers was the production of vault lights, or pavement lights. These were essentially glass prisms built into sidewalks. In the daytime, they allowed sunlight into the basements below. And at night, when the indoors were gaslit, they gave off a beautiful and eerie glow for pedestrians. You can still find old rows of uh, typically very dirty circular glass or resin vault lights built into the pavement outside of old buildings in cities like London, New York, and of course, Chicago. How does a sidewalk lighting company get into the rotating lifeboat business? It doesn't. At least, I don't think so. See, Matthew and I each found out more than we'd ever need to know about Brown Brothers and their vault lights. I have a particularly juicy story about Edwin's oldest son building a castle in Evanston for his wife before she divorced him and went on an absolute tear with a series of scandalously younger men. But there's no sign of either the company nor any members of the family working on boats of any kind. Instead, a search for people by the name of Brown building lifeboats in Chicago at the turn of the century turns up those patents, identical to both the Fool Killer and the Powerboat News article. And the patent holder is one Robert A. Brown. Now, it is possible that Robert A. Brown turned to Brown Brothers to build his boat. I can't, strictly speaking, rule that out but it seems much more likely that the mention of Brown Brothers in the article is a mistake. That somebody put two and two together, got five, and figured that Brown was related to the company, which appears to be wrong. Edwin and his family were extremely wealthy. Did I mention his kid built a castle in Evanston? And they had deep roots in Chicago, going back nearly to the city's founding. I know frustratingly little about Robert A. Brown, but I can tell you with confidence that he was not from Chicago and that he was anything but rich. How do I know that, though? After all, how many Robert Browns were living in Chicago in 1900? A lot. A whole lot. So fucking many, in fact, that even after I managed to discover the right one, I still ended up at the wrong cemetery yelling at the wrong grave because two separate people in Chicago, both named Robert A. Brown, with the same birthplace and the same date of birth, each died within two days of each other. So, how did I find the right one at all? There's not a lot left for me to be proud of in this story, so allow me one second of smugness, will you? and indulge me here. 
All I had to go on was that extremely common name. We're still the whole host of -of turn-of-the-century Chicago and Robert Browns mostly failed to distinguish themselves in the historical record. But I realized after a few long days, I didn't just have his name. I had his signature signed on his patent applications. With that, I went through the census records, cross-referencing every Robert Brown who signed them until I found the one that matched. Robert A. Brown of 304 Pine Avenue in the West Side neighborhood of Austin. From there, the barest sense of Robert's life began to form. I emphasize, the barest sense. What I've been able to piece together about Robert A. Brown comes from just about a dozen documents spread out over the span of more than three decades. Now, imagine that I found 10 sources for 30 years of your life and spun a narrative out of them. What are the odds that you would be happy with my biography of you? Yeah, so let's measure our confidence here. Robert Andrew Brown was born in 1860 in the small hamlet of Youngsville, Ontario, about halfway between Detroit and Toronto. He immigrated to America in 1882, although I'm not sure to where. The odds are that he came straight to Chicago, where he met his future wife, Minnie Fisher Brown, née Busey. They might have then moved to Missouri for a while, since their eldest daughter, Eula, was born there in 1886. But by 1891, they are back in Chicago for the birth of their second daughter, Helen. In 1900, they're living at 304 Pine Avenue, which is right on or at least near the grounds of a farm owned by Minnie's uncle, where her and her family had come to live when she was a little girl after her original home burnt down in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. In 1900, Robert lists his profession as contractor, and in 1910, he calls himself a builder. But it's sometime in that span that his life begins to get weird. I don't know how precisely Robert A. Brown became involved in the business of rotating lifeboats, but it's safe to say it had something to do with Captain Mayo. In October of 1900, Mayo came to Chicago looking for a plant to manufacture his lifeboats. It doesn't seem like he found one, or if he did, it doesn't seem like it ultimately worked out. But it's plausible that he met Brown during this time. It's even plausible that they began working together in some capacity. Maybe Brown was contracting for the plant Mayo hoped would build his boats. I don't know. Could be. It's also possible that Brown became aware of Mayo a year later, in November of 1901. By then, Mayo had completed a single one of his cigar-shaped lifeboats and lent it out to his former co-workers at the life-saving station in Frankfurt. It does not seem like they had used it, however, or even knew how to use it necessarily. So in November, hoping to drum up interest, Mayo made a heavily publicized voyage from Frankfurt to Chicago in his cigar-shaped shitboat. The papers announced that the trip was a grand success, even though if you read between the lines, you'd have noticed that the boat had to be towed most of the way to the city and back. What a stupid fucking invention. Anyway, given the publicity around Mayo's Cross Lake trip, it is conceivable that this is when Brown became aware of the idea of the rotating lifeboat too. 
Why did Robert A. Brown, Austin contractor, care about said rotating lifeboat? I have no idea. Did he have some interest in boating or in invention or in rotating? Maybe. The simplest thread I can see is that somehow and for some reason, Robert A. Brown saw in Mayo's boat an opportunity. Maybe he could make enough money from it that Minnie would no longer have to work, cobbling together change, sewing dresses for neighbors. It makes, well, not perfect sense, but a a sort of sense. Or maybe Brown had nothing to do with Mayo at all. Maybe Robert A. Brown got the same idea for a rotating lifeboat all by himself, the way a bunch of other weirdos of the era besides Mayo had. Maybe, but there are two good reasons to think that Mayo and Brown had some kind of relationship, and that the latter got his idea from the former. First of all, there's Brown's first lifeboat patent, filed in January of 1904. Eventually, Robert A. Brown's boat is going to look like the Fool Killer, on account of it's going to be the Fool Killer. But his first patent is the spitting image of the Mayo boat. They're both perfectly cylindrical, with gentle tapers on each end, and their outer hulls rotate freely. Well, not quite. See, the one big difference between Mayo's design and Brown's first patent is that Brown has come up with a novel way of propelling it. Instead of locking the rotating hull and making the whole central concept useless so that you can row or sail it, he proposes using the spin of the outer hull to move the boat, rotating the whole thing like a screw through the water, either via an engine or by hand cranks running through the inner deck. It's a real one-step-forward, one-step-back innovation. Otherwise, it looks to have been more or less descended directly from Mayo's design. The other piece of evidence of the connection between Brown and Mayo is a lot more compelling. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there to find about Captain Robert Diamond Mayo, but still not enough to form more than a sketch. In that sketch, though, he is a disagreeable dreamer who didn't work well with others. After raising $1 million in capital, Mayo's rescue lifeboat company succeeded in building one, read, one boat. The one he, cough, cough, sailed to Chicago and back. While newspapers said the company had orders to build a whole bunch of the things for a whole bunch of people, it doesn't seem like they ever did. Maybe because they didn't have a factory for the job, or the manpower, or the expertise, or maybe the orders never existed in the first place and Mayo was just a liar. Maybe the whole thing was a scam. I don't know. But on March 8th, 1904, Just three months after Brown's patent, mind you, Captain Robert D. Mayo withdrew from the Rescue Lifeboat Company and filed suit to get his patents returned to him. It seems like he succeeded in that, and that might be part of why he files so many patents after then. And soon after, Captain Mayo relocated to Cleveland, where he formed a new company, the Mayo Lifeboat Company, along with his sons. This must have left Lincoln Rogers and S.H. Clink, the new president and secretary treasurer of Rescue Lifeboat Company, in the lurch. They had no inventor and no patents, just the single, barely operational boat that Mayo had built four years earlier. Later that year, a contractor named George R. Ross sued the company, I'm not sure for what, but probably unpaid labor, and Rescue Lifeboat was ordered to pay Ross $800. It either could not or otherwise did not. So, two years later, in July of 1906, Ross, 
for whatever reason, turned his claim over to Robert A. Brown, who used it to file for ownership of the Rescue Lifeboat Company. So, by 1906, Robert A. Brown was associated at least closely enough to Captain Mayo to try to become the owner of his former company. And given that the company was less than worthless by that point, it seems likely that he had some kind of relationship with it that made him think it was worth his while. But he was wrong. Keep in mind, by the time Brown moved to take control of Rescue Lifeboat Company, he had already built his own vessel, the one featured in Powerboat News. And he'd already filed two more patents for lifeboats that no longer looked much like Mayo's. I mean... They still had the same central conceit, a rotating inner hull to stabilize the passengers. But between his first Mayo lookalike patent, which he filed in 1902, and his second filed in 1904, Robert A. Brown made a whole lot of changes. Mostly, they seem to have been for the better. Mayo's idea remained nearly the same in perpetuity and beyond. His son, Robert Jr., patents a lifeboat in 1944, and it's still recognizably a Mayo boat. Brown, on the other hand, quickly began moving in a different direction. His subsequent designs were, well, a lot more boat-like. Unlike the endlessly rolling cylinders of Mayo, after his first foray, Brown's boats have a definite orientation. They've got keels to keep them right side up, and by the third patent, he's given up on the perfectly round body, instead moving towards a more traditional tumble-home hull shape. Not only do Brown's boats have an actual definite vertical orientation, they've also got clearly defined fronts and backs. Their bows are pointier and more conical than Mayo's, making them more hydrodynamic, and their sterns cut straight up and down, also like most boats you've ever seen in your life. In fact, after 1904, Brown's patents are just generally more practical and less overcomplicated than Mayo's. Which is actually kind of strange, because while we don't know what Brown's background was, we do know that Mayo was a captain who actually piloted boats and ran a life-saving station. Yet, of the two of them, Brown is the one who seems to bring something like actual shipbuilding knowledge to the table. Maybe Brown knew more about shipwriting or sailing than the record suggests. Or maybe he had the humility to take advice from people who did. Or... Perhaps he did practical experiments with his designs, maybe even in the Chicago River or Lake Michigan, and let the data lead him where it went. I don't know. And I also don't know whether Robert A. Brown succeeded in taking control of Rescue Lifeboat Company. The company did continue to exist in some form until at least the end of 1909, but I'm fairly sure it wasn't doing anything by then. A report from Christmas Day 1909 in the Detroit Free Press explains how, five years earlier, a, quote, disappointed stockholder cut the original Mayo lifeboat adrift in the middle of Muskegon Lake. It washed up along the shore, where it sat for at least the next half decade, serving as a playground for local children. By the time of that report, Robert A. Brown was in charge at International Lifeboat Company, which he seems either to have formed from Rescue Lifeboat or after his bid to take over Rescue Lifeboat failed. I know about the existence of International Lifeboat Company and Brown's part in it because of a lawsuit filed against both of them in March of 1909. 
And it is definitely the most colorful bit of Brown's story available. Sometime earlier, a Chicagoan called David B. Marks traveled to Germany for business. Before he left, Robert A. Brown asked him, while he was there, if he could track down some investors and try to interest them in his lifeboat. He offered Marks 10% of whatever investment he was able to lure in, as well as, and this is the important part, promising to recoup his expenses up to $75, five of which could be for food and drink. It's a deal, said Marx, and he headed off across the Atlantic to chat up some German industrialists. Marx had five of that $75 earmarked for food and drink, which he expected to be plenty, since Germans, as he understood it, mostly drank beer. But his understanding was soon challenged. Far be it from me to be critical, he later told the Chicago Tribune. But all the time I spent in Hamburg and Berlin, I didn't see a single German drinking beer. I got hold of a couple of capitalists in Berlin and took them to a saloon. What do you have, gentlemen? I asked. Nixon beer, they said. We never drink anything but fine in Germany. I see I'm stung and I order wine. When they consumed several dollars worth, I took ginger ale. I paid the check and tipped the waiter 30 cents. He looked at me kind of sorrowful and handed the money back. Keep it, said he. You need it more than I do. I took other capitalists out for refreshments, and they drank highballs. I tried to suggest beer, but nobody would hear me. I couldn't get out of a saloon without buying. Marx testified that, in spite of all this liquor, he was unable to interest any of the Germans in Brown's lifeboat business. When he returned, he filed suit against Brown for the money he spent out of pocket on all that alcohol. I know that you are on pins and needles, wondering how the case of booze v. boats shook out, but the bad news is, I can't tell you. Aside from the story in the Tribune, I can find no record of it, which might not be surprising given that it was hardly the sort of precedent-setting matter you'd expect to be taught in law schools, but it is a little strange, because the judge presiding over the case was Harry Olson, the first chief justice of the Chicago Municipal Court, not to mention a prominent eugenicist on the board of the American Society of Eugenics. Olson, according to the Tribune, was tricked into this absolute eye-roll of a lawsuit by a lower justice as a joke. That's pretty good, huh? Unfortunately, there aren't many more lighthearted details left to tell you. There aren't that many details of any flavor left to tell you, actually. The junk lawsuit is the first evidence of the International Lifeboat Company, and it's also the last. It's the last word written about Brown's boats writ large that I've been able to find. And it's very nearly the last thing I've found about Robert A. Brown at all. Not quite, but close. Okay, here we are at Oakwoods. Okay, so this is actually the guy. This is actually the guy. The other guy I just screamed at and asked him why he built the boat, and he had no idea what I was talking well, about. Well, at least he had a visitor. That's true. The last thing I've found about Robert A. Brown, naturally enough, is his grave. Oakwood Cemetery, the first modern, large-scale public cemetery. Where you could come, hang out with your family for the day, having a good time. With dead people. With dead people. We are looking for Robert A. Brown. Heather and I split up. I don't 
I think I'm going to find it before her because I have a better idea of where I'm looking. But obviously my better idea of where I'm looking is not so far done me much fucking good, has it? Well, technically Heather found it. You got it? Here we go. A week after leading us to North Chicago to yell at the wrong Robert A. Brown, we headed to the south side, Oakwood Cemetery, to find the right one. And after a few minutes searching, there he was. Father, yes, there Robert we go. Robert A. Brown died November 15th, 1924, age 64. Built the fool killer. Yeah. There he is. There he is. It ought to have been an exciting moment. More exciting than I found it. All right. Well. Hey. That's it. We've been searching for you. Huh. That doesn't do us any good at all. <laughs> we found him, though. We found him, though. You found him. Like, yeah. You should savor the moment, honestly. You should be like, I sought out to find who built the boat, and you found him, he's right here. Yeah, but that doesn't tell me any of the things I want to know. Because here I was, after the better half of a decade, finally standing on top of the guy responsible for the fool killer. Except, no, he wasn't. Not really. The fool killer was a weird and nearly inexplicable submarine built by some mad genius with an unquenchable thirst for glory. Or something like that. It was a mystery full of weird turns and twists that captured the attention of tens of thousands of people. Robert A. Brown wasn't responsible for the fool killer. Frenchie Dinell was. He's the one who called it a submarine, attributed it to Nissen, called it fool killer. Patricia A. Gruce Harris was responsible for the fool killer. She's the one who connected it to the submarine building Hoosier Laudner Phillips. The pseudonymous columnist Cecil Adams was responsible for the fool killer. He is the one who wrote a column about it for the straight dope. Mysterious Chicago historian Adam Seltzer is responsible for the fool killer. He wrote up a multi-part examination of the evidence in the late 2000s and gives tours of the city where he spreads its legend regularly. Not to mention a half dozen other authors, bloggers, and columnists who have told some version of the fool killer story in more or less detail at various points throughout the decades. And I mean, yeah, me. <laughs> Probably no one is more responsible for the fool killer than I am. And standing at Robert A. Brown's grave, it felt less like I was responsible for it than that I had materialized it. The snowball was already running downhill, but I gave it a bunch of mass. Not just the attention I gave it, in the form of you listening right now and the press the story received, but I was the one who glued on so much of the stuff. John Holland and the Fenians, Josiah Tuck and the Insane Asylum, John Cleve Sims and the Hollow Earth, and most of all, Louis Gathman. When you brush away all the detritus that this story has picked up over the last century, what you're left with is... a lifeboat. A pretty bad lifeboat. But not even the worst lifeboat, just a middle-rung variation of a mediocre-tier failed concept. And there's no bombastic inventor, no mad scientist or wild flim-flam man to explore. There's just this modest, unvisited grave 
in the middle of a stretch of modest, unvisited graves. There's so much about the Fool Killer story that I still don't know. I don't know how or why Robert got involved in this business in the first place. I don't know how he found the money to build a boat, or how many boats he might have built. I suspect he only ever built the one, the one that ended up at the bottom of the river, a skee-ball arcade, a traveling circus, an amusement park. I don't know what happened to it after, and I don't know what happened to it before, when or where or why it sunk. I don't know why no one recognized it when it came out of the water, or whether people did but didn't care. I don't know why Robert A. Brown himself didn't come forward since he was still alive and in Chicago at the time. But there at his graveside, none of it mattered to me. The same way none of it had seemed to matter to anyone else. Robert A. Brown's tombstone doesn't read of the fool killer or lifeboat inventor or president international lifeboat company or even Sued because Germans drink highballs, R.I.P. Aside from his name and the relevant dates, it just has one word. And it just says father on it, right? It just says father, yes, I think. Father. In the grand scheme of things, that is what Robert A. Brown really was. A father of some half dozen or more children. We've got Roberta, Eula... Ione, Helen, and Joan, in addition to Minnie. Since he's marked his father, it doesn't seem impossible that one or more of the kids could be around here. The problem is that since they're all girls, there's like a strong chance that they don't have the right last name. Yeah. And yet, when Heather and I went searching... Well, nobody's named that around. No. They were nowhere. I mean, around him could mean a lot of places, I guess, but... None of his family is buried with him, or near him, or even in the same cemetery. I have a feeling they just buried him and moved on with their lives. Which actually makes a bit of sense. Between the time he was sued by David Marks and when he died in November of 1924, there are only a few blips of Robert A. Brown's existence. And most of them are bad. In 1910, he's working as a builder, living with his wife, Minnie, and three of their daughters, Helen, Joan, and Roberta, at the old family home in Austin. Everything's looking fine and good. The next year, everything turned. Robert declared bankruptcy on January 16, 1911, presumably because of the stupid boat, which he probably poured most or all of the family money into, to no appreciable end. It was a bad start to the year, but things were only bound to get worse. One of the things that was so difficult about tracking Robert and Minnie is that they had all of these children on the record, but all of them were girls, which meant that eventually most of them got married and changed their names. The only one I've been able to keep a bead on at all is Joan, who not only changed her last name when she got married, but managed to have three separate first names, too. Sometimes she's Joan, other times she's Ione with an I, and other times she's Ione. 
She had a career with the railroads that took her and her husband far away from Chicago and all across the United States and Canada. But even her records don't connect to Robert past the 1910 census. I thought that it was hard because Robert and Minnie only had girls. But that wasn't right. They didn't only have girls. They just only had girls who survived. On November 24th, 1911, Minnie gave birth to their first son. And three days later, he was buried. His name was Robert A. Brown, Jr. His death certificate is the last piece of evidence I've found of Robert A. Brown Sr.'s existence up until his own was signed in 1924. By 1920, Minnie and the girls had left him and moved to Oak Park. If Robert filled out his census that year, I can't find it. I wonder if he was living on the street or in an institution. I have pieced together this whole man's life out of just a dozen or so blocks, so I'm bound to be wrong. But it's hard not to look at 1911, at the bankruptcy and the death of Robert Jr., and then Minnie moving away from her lifelong home with her children, away from Robert Sr., and not draw a picture in your head, isn't it? That picture isn't funny or fascinating or weird or quirky. It's just sad. Really deeply sad. However it happened, by the time he died, Robert's legacy wasn't his lifeboat, it was his family, and he had lost them. As someone who spent nearly as much time obsessively investigating it as he spent trying to build and sell it, it is hard to not blame, at least in part, the boat. So, let's let it be that, I thought. What more is there to say? An average man stumbled upon a semi-fantastic idea, which he probably saw as nothing more than a way to provide comfort and security to his family. Instead, it did the opposite, and he died alone. What happened to the stupid boat seems totally pedantic in comparison. There was no way to know anyway, and little reason to. Dramatically speaking, a tragedy should start somewhere high and end somewhere low. The greater the distance between the stasis and the denouement, the better. This story began with a submarine. A cool, weird, funny mystery that traveled through a dozen or more wacky oddball figures and hypotheses before it finally fell here with Robert A. Brown. It wasn't where I wanted the story to end, but now that we were here, it felt like a good place to get off, to finally leave this quest completed. And then Matthew sent me another fucking email. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want the story again, just to recap what I told you in the email, uh, I was watching Ask a Mortician on YouTube. Uh, Caitlin Doty, who is, I I love her channel and the stuff that she does, and she, for whatever reason, you know, by whatever universal mechanic, she decided to put out a, a fairly long video on the Eastland. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's clear that she was working with uh, whatever the historical society is for the Eastland wreck. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed she had all these fantastic pictures of, uh, and I was shocked with how well documented the, the salvage was. And so I went searching for the pictures myself. And then I started having the thought, okay, well, if the Eastland is this well documented, you know, how well documented is the Chicago River in general? Mm-hmm. And then I started looking, you know, I, I started going to some of my usual haunts for high-resolution, turn-of-the-century images. And one of the ones I went to, I was just searching through everything they had on Chicago and the Chicago River. And the bridge that was in the image caught my attention because it's just a cool-looking bridge. And when I went to click on it, oh, there it is. There it was, the full killer, moored to the side of the south branch of the Chicago River in front of an old L-train bridge. Clear as day. Two of the photos were pretty obviously taken at the same time, just a few feet apart from one another. The subject is the bridge, which was the first of a style of drawbridge designed by William Schertzer, commonly referred to as a jackknife bridge. In one of those photos, the bridge is down and a train is crossing it. In the other, the bridge is up and a large freighter is passing underneath it. In both, the fool killer is just sitting there in the foreground in the most humdrum way. The photographer clearly doesn't care that it's there at all. The third photo is even more annoying. It's a wider view of the bridge taken from further back. It might even have been taken from a boat on the river, but that's just a thought. And in the lower left-hand corner, there is the fool killer again, fully in frame, from behind, bobbing on the side of the water. There are two things that make this picture so particularly galling. The first is that you can see from this angle that the boat hasn't just been anchored in place or tied up to the side. There's some sort of gangplank built to it, which seems to suggest that it's there semi-permanently, which has a whole bunch of implications that I'll come back to shortly. The other thing that's so infuriating about this photo is that sometime after it was taken, it was colorized, painted over, and turned into a postcard. Like, there was a literal greetings from Chicago postcard that who knows how many tourists and such bought and sent to their friends and family of this jackknife bridge with the fool killer right there, hiding in plain sight. And that postcard was being sold until at least 1913, just two years before Frenchie fished that same boat out of the river and called it a submarine. It is mind-boggling! The photo seems to date from 1907, two years after Brown built it. 
Both Matthew and I have scoured photos and articles from later on, 1908, 1910, 1911, and neither of us have found any others that show the fool killer. But none of them definitively show that it's not there either. There are a couple of snaps taken of the same general area, but it is not entirely clear whether the fool killer is gone or whether it could just be out of frame. Either way, for a period of probably not less than a year and potentially much longer, thousands of Chicago commuters had bird's eye views of the fool killer each and every day. And until, at a maximum, two years before it was discovered at the bottom, dime shops and pharmacies were selling picture postcards of the damn thing. Frenchy himself, a diver who worked regularly on the river, should have passed by with some frequency. Yet, when he pulls it up, he thinks it's an ancient submarine and no one corrects him. And both of those statements could be wrong, though. It's entirely plausible that Frenchy knew exactly what it was, that he pretended it was a submarine and called it Nissan's Fool Killer, full well knowing both of those things weren't true because he was a publicity hound and because he thought he might make some money with the story. It's possible that plenty of people knew exactly what it was, but either didn't feel any reason to correct the record or even that they did correct the record, but no one recorded their record correcting. The newspapers, at least the Chicago-based ones, might have known it was a grift and participated because it filled column inches. The whole thing could have been widely understood as a joke before time erased the punchline. When I got Matthew back on the line to talk about the photos, I was surprised by what he initially had to say about them. I found something else that, relative to our understanding of the Fool Killer, feels very important, but relevant to you actually telling the story and making the episode is just another visual. That's not helpful. What do you, you mean, this whole thing? Yeah. And in turn, he was surprised that I had come to basically the opposite conclusion. Oh, no, I think that this is, to me, I was about done with looking for anything more specific aimed at the boat. Because to me, it was like, well, there, there can't be that much more interesting about the boat itself. I don't mean that there's nothing interesting, period. But interesting to me, uh, I, I was just not expecting there to be much more. And then I see this email from you with this photo and the number of alarms that went off in my head and the number of possibilities that immediately began to swim in my head, I think there were there are more things to this story potentially than there are to Robert A. Brown and building the boat in the first place. I just don't know whether we can um, get any of that information. I had been ready, more than ready, to put this whole saga to bed with the sad end of Robert A. Brown. But the bridge photos changed something for me for several reasons. First of all, they felt almost like a sign. I thought there couldn't be much left out there to discover, and circumstances immediately conspired to spit in my face a deafening, oh yeah? Photographic evidence of the fool killer didn't just exist, it was obvious! The photos weren't buried in the stacks of some obscure university library, unsorted and neglected. They're all over the internets. They are for sale as prints. 
there's even a lively discussion on one website of what that weird boat in the corner could be. A submarine? A lifeboat? Little do you know, big guy 1960, that this material was just sitting on the forest floor, plump for the foraging, makes it impossible not to wonder what else could still be out there buried under some thin level of metaphorical topsoil. Or not even buried at all. It's like this stupid boat is taunting me. But that, that is just my baggage. More important is what the photos tell us. They give us clearer views of the fool killer pre-sinking than any we've seen before. It's the first look anyone's had of the rear of the boat in at least a hundred years, which is neato. It turns out there's a large hatch built into the back. They also melt away any lingering doubts that Brown's designs, the powered lifeboat, and the fool killer are one and the same. It's it, the powerboat news photo. We always had this problem where it's floating in this abstract space because of the photo editing. But like now we can see at the very least, there's a boat that looks almost, that looks more identical to the fool killer. And it's what, three quarters of a mile away from where the fool killer was photographed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, a, you can't explain that. You no, know? no, it's, it's pretty bold. And they seem to support the notion that at some point or another, the top of the boat was damaged. While all the pre-sinking photos show a guardrail on the upper deck, it's missing from the salvage photos, though you can clearly see where it should be attached. In all the images and designs, there's a short conning tower, or turret, towards the front of the boat, into which the pilot's head would go to navigate by. In the river photos, and the Powerboat News article, that conning tower is a pretty clean cube with circular glass portholes in all four cardinal directions. But in the salvage photos, its shape is harder to discern. It looks like it's been crushed or partially broken. Before we saw the bridge photos, both Matthew and I thought it was reasonable to think that the fool killer must have been run over by a larger boat, that that's what crushed the tower, ripped off the railing, and sunk it. But that theory mostly made sense because we both assumed that the fool killer sat low in the water, that most of its tubular body was submerged, making it harder to see and easier to mount. The bridge photos, however, show that the waterline is a lot lower than anticipated. Most of the hull is above the surface, which could indicate that it was damaged only after it came to rest at the river bottom. The river being, you know, somewhere, like you said, it was about 20, and I think I've been reading between 18 and 20 feet. The full killer, as I've been dimensioning it, is about six and a half feet wide. And with the conning tower is probably going to be like seven or eight feet, you know, from keel to the top of the tower. Mm -hmm. So if that's sitting on the riverbed and you have a, a, sh a ship come along that has a 15 foot draft and it runs over the wreck, it's going to take off, you know, the railing and the, and the tower. So that's, um, you know, that's just as easy a, a explanation for why that stuff looks to be missing yeah. in the photo to me. The photos also narrow the window for when it could have sunk. Because there it is, in the photos in 1907. So, for at least the first two years after Robert built it, it managed to stay afloat. After that, is anybody's guess. When do you suspect this thing would have sunk? I think... I think 
probably sometime after 1910, I want to say. Oh, you think it goes that it lasts that long? It, there's just a lot. It, well, actually, there's there's so much that now I, I can't figure out how else. I think it's I think that you propose the theory that okay, maybe people are going over the bridge every day. Maybe they're seeing it. Maybe it is this great punchline among Chicago commuters that this stupid boat is now being exhibited as a submarine, and that is more believable to me than the thing goes to the bottom of the river early and no one hits it or no one knowingly hits it or, or, you know, goes to dredge the river. I pulled up a bunch of articles where people were talking about, they wanted to tear down this particular bridge because it was such a nuisance and a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the 1911 photo of the bridge where we're sort of split over whether or not the fool killer was present there based on the view, but they're driving piles into the river. Sometime after 1908, they are laying uh, some kind of submarine cable in the river they're just fucking with it so much. And I get the Chicago river is polluted and maybe you can't see your hand in front of your face, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like playing, you know, diver battleship where sooner or later you're going to hit this submarine. And it feels like there's enough activity that if it's underwater for more than a year, someone's going to find it. Uh, you know, I'm, part of me wants to say it might not have actually sunk until 1915. Um, but I, you know, it, yeah, I, it's, I don't know. Wow. I don't know if that answers any of your questions. No, I'm, I'm I mean, really I not think firm. that's, well, of course it's not firm. I'm just, uh, I'm interested because I have been uh, of the opposite view, which is that I, I think that the earlier it goes down, the better. Uh, we've got the photographs, which are dated from 19, the last one that we have a date on is 1907, correct? Uh, the, of the ones where it's actually in the photograph. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 1907. So to so I have been working under the assumption that this thing goes down, um, not long after that. Although I, I mean I don't have any reason to think that, except that, uh, yeah, we've got two. There are two um, opposing problems, right? The first is if it sinks, how does nobody notice it sinking, or how does nobody notice it on the bottom? And the second is if it doesn't sink, how does nobody remember that it was sitting on the surface and boy drawing uh, threading the needle between uh it not being noticed underwater and it not being remembered above water is is a really frustrating exercise especially because we have no further way to uh test or delineate the answer depending on which of us is right it could have sunk anywhere between 1908 and 1915 What seems safe to say is that after 1911, Brown has nothing to do with it. Hard to imagine him surviving bankruptcy with a big old boat in his possession, especially given that, all things being equal, it's likely that said big old boat was the cause of said bankruptcy. Does this mean that it sunk by then? You'd think that if it were still around, it would have been repossessed and sold for scrap, right? But maybe he'd already sold it before 1911. Heck, maybe he'd sold it before 1907. Probably not, given that he's employing marks to find investors in 1909, but who knows? I've found a couple of old classified ads from around this period of people trying to sell launches, which tell potential buyers to come down to around this bridge to check them out. So... It is possible that the area where the fool killer was moored was a kind of makeshift used boatyard, 
but I doubt it. It doesn't seem like a very good place to attract customers, and there are only a couple of these advertisements, and they appear to all be for the same boat. Which gets us to the real thing about the river photos that has me back on the hunt. Why is it there? Not just floating on the river for a few days, but with gangplanks built for the long haul. What purpose did it serve there, at this railroad bridge, in 1907 until whenever it left or sunk? There's no office there, so I doubt it was being used as a model to try to entice investors. It could have been that he was looking to sell it, but I already said why that seems less likely to me. Maybe it was just abandoned there, but then why the gangplank? And would the city have been all right with it being derelict? Maybe. I I truly don't know. The possibility that won't leave my mind is that the Fool Killer, by 1907, was no longer primarily a lifeboat, but a houseboat. Admittedly, there are no overt signs of habitation in the three photos. There's no clothesline being run out of it or stuff visibly littered around the shore. But in the first half of the 20th century, people did live on boats on the Chicago River. There's not a lot of record of how, or how many, or when, aside from during the Great Depression and after, when a veritable floating shanty town formed on the north side around Irving Park Avenue, several miles from the Jackknife Bridge. It got the name Houseboat City, and it persisted into the early 1970s, though by then only a few people were living there. Houseboat City solved a housing crisis in the 30s and provided a way for people to avoid paying rent and dodge paying property taxes. The legality of Houseboat City was questionable, but whenever officials came to serve eviction notices, the boats simply scooted away downriver, only reappearing when the coast was clear. Could the Fool Killer have been an earlier version of this same sort of thing? Maybe somebody even paid Robert A. Brown a nominal under-the-table rent to live in it. In the two photos taken from the side of the river, there is a boat moored behind the Fool Killer, which to me looks like it could be set up for that purpose. And maybe the Fool Killer was too. Look, I don't know. I don't even know how to evaluate the odds of that. Probably, if I'm honest, it is a bit of a stretch. But there is a reason I can't jostle the possibility free from my head. The dog. From pretty much the moment I started investigating the Fool Killer story, I was ready to dismiss the detail where Frenchie claimed to find remains inside it. It seemed like that should have been a bigger deal than the papers made it out to be, and Frenchie, as we know, was a liar. I vacillated back and forth on whether he planted the bones or whether he just said they existed without providing evidence at all. But I gave hardly any credence to the idea that he could have been telling the straight-up truth. A big part of why it seemed right to dismiss the claim was the dog. If Frenchie found the remains of a person in the boat, that's extraordinary, but also somewhat sensical. After all, the boat did sink, somehow, and who's to say that there wasn't somebody inside of it at the time? But whether it was a submarine or a lifeboat, I just didn't see why there should be a dog. I mean, sure, some eccentric might have brought their dog on an experimental submarine adventure or to test a rolling lifeboat. It wasn't impossible, but it would be an undeniably strange thing to do. 
But you know where having a dog would be completely normal? A houseboat. Whether someone was staying aboard the Fool Killer officially, or whether a vagrant took it up as a secret squat, the bridge photos to me indicate that it's possible I dismissed the remains too easily. And if they were real, if a person and their dog actually did die on board the Fool Killer, then I want to know how that happened and who they were. I don't know how to determine that. Or anything else. I don't even know how to adjudicate the chances of any of the available theories. I've exhausted every means I can think of for settling the remaining mysteries of the Fool Killer. I'm going to keep searching, don't get me wrong, and I'm sure Matthew will too. But the conclusion I've come to in the last week or so is that we can't do it alone. So I am turning it over to you. I am building a dedicated Fool Killer tab onto our website, constantpodcast.com, where I'll drop as many articles and photos and records as I am legally able, and I'll keep the comment section open for people to discuss and inform. I'm also going to make a big Twitter thread with a lot of that info, so even if you don't personally think you've got anything to add, maybe you'll do me the favor of liking and retweeting it to pass the twilight bark out further into cyberspace. I think if we just get a couple hundred eyes on the problem, we'll be surprised by what we turn up. There are a lot of questions left to answer, a lot of paths left to take. Is there more information out there about Robert A. Brown and his family? Minnie Fisher Brown, maiden named Busey, lived a long, long life. In the 1950s, her and her sister were being interviewed by papers as two of the last living witnesses of the Chicago fire. Yet I don't know when or how she died or where she's buried, nor do I have much of a clue what happened to her and Robert's children. Is any of that info out there? Would any of it help fill in the gaps? Maybe somebody has a family record where one of them talks about the boat. Is there more to find out on the companies, Rescue Lifeboat Company or International Lifeboat Company? I found an ad for a company calling itself International Lifeboat Company in Toronto in 1911, along with a design for a lifeboat that looks a whole lot like Robert's later patents. It seems like it's probably a coincidence, since his name is nowhere to be found and the copy says the inventor is from New Zealand, but I don't know for sure because I can't find anything else about it. Is there still something out there to be found about the ultimate fate of the Fool Killer? There are records of C.W. Parker's circus business, kept at two libraries, the Brian Sutton Smith Library and Archives of Play in Rochester, New York, and the Hagley Museum in Wilmington, Delaware. Do either of those archives contain anything about the world's first submarine and where it ended up? Matthew thinks that whatever happened to it, there could still be pieces of it out there to be found. That seems incredible to me, but he's been right a lot more frequently than I have. Could someone out there recognize a porthole or the bow cone or some rivets or something with all the new photos available? Most of all, of course, is how it sunk and when and possibly with whom. That's the real ball game. If anyone out there more clever than me, and there are a lot of you, can devise a way to work that stuff out, then we'll be able to put a bow on this story once and for all. So go check it out. ConstantPodcast.com, again, is the website. If the tab is not available when you're hearing this, then you are hearing this early because I am getting it done as fast as I can. At ConstantPodcast is the Twitter handle, and The Constant Podcast is our Instagram. 
If nothing else, you'll be able to get a good look at all the stuff you've been hearing about and help share the mystery around to someone who might be able to solve it. If there's some big break, I will be back to tell you about it. But until then, I am putting myself on a forced fool killer vacation before the last fool that it kills ends up being me. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Blue Dot Sessions, and Lee Rose Veer. Voice acting comes to you from Andrew Bailing and Nick Sands. Heather Chrysler is my personal lifeboat, not to mention my always dependable graveyard co-lurker. The deepest of special thanks go out to you, Matthew Riquetza, for ruining my life. Not to mention supporting the making of this show via your financial contributions on Patreon. And he's not the only one. Special thanks also to Curtis, Stephen Marshall, Morgan Kimball, David Gutman, and all of you who make The Constant possible. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash theconstant to sign up and get access to the secret feed, where episodes drop early, ad-free, and with special monthly bonus content. ConstantPodcast.com, one more time, is our website where you can either now or soon find our dedicated Fool Killer tab with photos, articles, and other information to help you take a bite out of this mystery. I really hope you will. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Robert A. Brown launched a rotating, life-saving powerboat in 1905, and then who knows what happened to it. This has been The Constant. Oh, and so okay. I've got one more question for you. One more thing that we didn't talk about, and then I think I should I should let you move on with your day. Um, the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and why you need to feel the need to put what looks like a flush toilet? I mean, if it's in the patents, I'm assuming it's not just a bucket that you sit on. No, it looks like a flush toilet. It, yeah. So why you feel the need to put that in a lifeboat? Uh, I, I don't. Again, they just, they have this mechanical complexity fetish and this um, a commodity fetish in their designs. So, Well, and not only that, because yes, uh, the, the, why you would have this in the first place is a great question. Uh, why you would have this level of uh, needless, dangerous complexity is also a great question. But third off, you... It went, so if you're a passenger on this lifeboat and it's you feel the call of nature, mm-hmm. you go up past the captain who is standing with his head up in the conning tower and you mm-hmm. go past him, sit down on a toilet pretty much directly in front of him. Yeah. And you just do your business facing his crotch as he... Uh, continues to try to save your life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>